0: Thank you, John. My wife, alas, would agree that I'm the weightier Dr. (laughs) (laughs) Oz. Too weighty, I'm afraid. Anyway, but thanks. It's a real pleasure to be back here again at Central. I'm one of those, and I'm sure several others in the room are the same, who have a sense that humanity, our Western civilization, and certainly the American Republic are all at a most extraordinary moment. And I want to pick up just one slice on it, above all to do with America, but with implications that go far wider. The climax of the Revolutionary War was Yorktown. And legend has it that when the British and Hessian forces marched out to surrender, They were ordered to play the ballad, The World Turned Upside Down. That song, some of you may have heard in Hamilton, a rap version of it more recently, that song goes back to the 17th century. The digger's leader, one of the revolutionaries in the English Revolution, he said, freedom is the man who will turn the world upside down. The English Revolution was the first of the five major revolutions. Now, if you think, the word revolution was originally scientific. A body is in motion while it's circling around until it comes back to where it started. That was a revolution. And so it was a double advance when it became first political, not scientific, And secondly, it wasn't coming back to where it started from, but the idea of revolution, you're moving to something that's truly revolutionary in a transformative sense. Now, a lot of that was owed to the Bible because, as the Jews put it simply, God creates order. We humans create disorder. So the Lord and we when we discover him and enter into partnership with him, we work into the disordered order and return it the right way up. So the world is upside down. And we're turning it the right way up, although it looks to the world, the wrong way up and subversive. Now you can see that idea goes back to the Bible. King James Version actually has use of the term Turned upside down more than our modern English translations, but the most famous one is in the New Testament. You remember when Paul, the Jewish agitator, he says, "Turn the world upside down." Have come here. Now, of course, you can immediately see it's relative. Who says so, and what do they mean? So, for example, Tacitus, the Roman historian, accused the Jews of being subversive and turning the world upside down. The emperor Julian, who tried to restore Rome to paganism and failed, was the Christians of turning the world upside down. Of course, we know him as the Julian the Apostate because Christians thought they turned it the right way up again when he failed. Those of you who know philosophy... Marx says he found Hegel upside down and turned him the right way up. Or you have Nietzsche, who looked at Exodus, which is a great revolution, and he says, no, Exodus was actually slave morality, and we need to turn it back. So the herd are not on top. We've got to go back to the hero on top. In other words, I start there. The notion of revolution is relative. So when you hear Bernie Sanders talking about it or Congresswoman Khlaib, you've got to always say which revolution and what do they actually mean? Because it's relative. Now, the English Revolution, 1640, especially 1642, was the first of five major modern revolutions. The English, the American, obviously, 1776, the French, 1789, The Russian, 1917, and the Chinese in 1949. Now, first sight, huge difference between the first and the second. The English one failed. Historians call it the lost cause. The King came back. But actually, the English and the American are very close because both of them came out of the Reformation. Through the Reformation and the discovery of printing, you had a rediscovery of the Bible. Now, if you're thinking, when the church became officially Christian, the religion of the empire in 380, the Catholic Church copied Greek ideas and Roman structures uncritically it didn't go to the Bible. Roman structures are hierarchical. Power, Caesar, the consuls, et cetera, et cetera. And you had the Pope and the Cardinals, et cetera, et cetera. And it was actually a Catholic layman, the great historian of freedom, Lord Acton, who made the very famous saying, you all know, all (coughs) power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you probably know if you read the letter, he was talking about the Catholic Church, which, like Rome, was based on hierarchical power and became very corrupt. Think of the Inquisition, think of notions like error has no rights. Well, the Reformation, sola scriptura, went back to the scriptures. The scriptures are not hierarchical. So the English Revolution, which failed, and the American, which succeeded, were actually both children of the Reformation. Now, of course, the French, the Russian, and the Chinese were anti-biblical, anti-Christian, and uh, anti-religious very, very powerfully. Now, why does any of that matter today? Well, for two reasons, if you look at our modern situation. The lesser reason is, you go to most of our universities today, The secular narrative is predominant that freedom and toleration come from the loosening of the bonds of religion. And what gave us freedom and toleration was the Enlightenment, particularly the French Enlightenment. Now that's historically rubbish. Historians, Eric Nelson at Harvard, Michael Walzer at Princeton, many others, historians say the 17th century was, quote, the biblical century. The model was the Hebrew Republic. And the notion of covenant, rediscovered, was behind the English and the American Revolution. Many Americans don't know that covenant led to Constitution. The 17th century came out of the Reformation, very specifically. But the other reason this is important, more than history, is that it bears on America's current crisis. Why? It's no secret that America is as deeply divided now as at any time since just before the Civil War. Big differences, of course, not slavery. There's no Lincoln addressing the better angels, one of the big problems today. But the question is why? What's the division? Some people, as you know, blame the president. Others blame the social media. I think those who look deeper say it's the Coastals, New York, California, against the Heartlanders, Midwest, South, and so on. Others say, no, the real division is between the nationalists and populists and the globalists. Now, all of those have something to do with it, no question. But I'm not alone in arguing that actually the real cause of the division, if you think of it, is deeper than all of that. The real division is between those who see the republic and freedom from within the perspective of the American Revolution and those who understand the republican freedom from within the perspective of the French Revolution and its heirs. Now, why do I say that? If you think of ideas that have gone through America in the last 50 years postmodernism, political correctness, tribal politics, identity politics, the sexual revolution, currently the rage for socialism go on down the line. Every one of those things doesn't go back to 1776, has nothing to do with that, goes back to ideas which have flowed down from the French Revolution. Now, don't misunderstand me. The French Revolution lasted 10 years. So we're not talking about Monsieur Macron or anything in France today. 1789, 1799, Napoleon said the revolution is over. And it was replaced by a dictator. So we're not talking about the French Revolution in terms of where it is today. Not at all. But the French Revolution is like a huge volcanic explosion and the lava outflow has gone across the world and it's reckoned to be one of the great formative events in the whole of modern history. Now, and how? Well, just take for a minute the three ideals of the French Revolution. Liberté, Liberty. The French Revolution and its heirs have done virtually nothing for liberty. It's well known for the reign of terror. None of the revolutions which have come out of the French Revolution have ever been distinguished in adding to liberty. Well, what about the other two, though? Liberté, fraternité, fraternity, brotherhood. In the 19th century, that was the principal impact of the French Revolution. It led to what's called now revolutionary nationalism. The uniting of Greece and throwing off the Turks, the uniting of Italy out of all the little kingdoms, all came out of a revolutionary nationalism which was sparked by the French Revolution. And, of course, that also led later to the rise of the secular part of Zionism. Theodor Herzl and so on, very important with the creation of the State of Israel. And it also led, much later, to Hitler. Now, remember, Hitler's model was the French Revolution. And one of the great mistakes, historians say, is to see that communism and fascism are opposites. They're not actually, they're terribly close in many, many areas. And you can see that Hitler had as his model the French Revolution. But all of that was fraternité leading to a revolutionary nationalism. And that was incredibly important in the 19th century. Now, am sure some of you are saying, well, what about Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels? In the 19th century, they weren't very influential. Their impact was the 20th century when communism made its imprint. In the 19th century, he was the scribbler in the British Museum. He was just an intellectual writing, but no successful revolutions at all coming from communism. But in the 20th century, that was the big impact of the French Revolution. And it's not fraternité, but égalité because all the revolutionaries said at the end of the 19th century, what we need is a total revolution, a complete revolution, and all the other ones they saw, 1830, 1848, they didn't succeed, but they were never complete enough because they never achieved equality. And it was that stress on equality which led to what was called revolutionary socialism, which of course is Karl Marx and that is what triumphed in 1917. Now, of course, the Russian Revolution has often been described as a Bolshevik coup rather than a true revolution because Lenin had around him a little clique and they realized they needed to use terror and violence to win because there simply wasn't a mass following of the proletariat, the people, as Marx said. But through... The Russian Revolution and then, of course, the Chinese Revolution. The 20th century was the century of revolutionary socialism. What about our own? Well, our own century, the 21st century, they say that the influence of the French Revolution is in cultural Marxism or what's called critical theory. Now, this is important to understand because this is what's touching America today. As I said, the Russian Revolution was not really a Marxist revolution. In fact, there's never been one in the way Marx said. So in the 1920s, there was an Italian Marxist called Antonio Gramsci, very important in the history of the last century, and he sat in jail for many years under Mussolini, and he had a lot of time to figure out what went wrong. There simply wasn't a proletarian revolution. What you needed to have instead was to win the dominance, what he called the hegemony, win the dominance, the hegemony of the cultural gatekeepers. If you win the elites who are the gatekeepers, astride the doorways of influence of ideas, then you can win a culture. Now his ideas, which he wrote in prison notebooks in the 1920s, were picked up by the Frankfurt School at Dorno, and here in the United States by Herbert Marcuse and those of you who are older will remember that name. And he wrote a lot about that in the 1960s. And he was the one, along with a young German, Rudy Deutschke, who was the head of the Red Brigade in Germany, who in 1967-68 called for a long march through the institutions. And this is important. I was in my 20s. I came to the US that year for the first time as a tourist. Six weeks, east coast, west coast, lots of places in between. I met Mario Savio, who led the free speech movement at Berkeley. Jefferson Airplane, Grace Slick, Fillmore <laughs> West. It was incredible time. Hate Ashby and all that. But Those of you old enough to remember that, a hundred American cities were burning. Martin Luther King assassinated in April, Bobby Kennedy in the summer, the so-called Chicago police riots at the Democratic Convention. A hundred cities burning, but the radicals knew they wouldn't win that way. The nearest they got that year was bringing General de Gaulle's government almost to its knees, but they failed even there. They knew they would not win, put it simply, in the streets. So that's when they listened to Marcuse and Rudy Deutschke. You needed a long march through the institutions. In other words, you're not going to do it in the streets. You've got to win the gatekeepers, colleges and universities, the press and the media, the world of Hollywood and entertainment. Win those gatekeeping institutions and then you win the culture. Now, we're 50 odd years on from that. Have they done it? Many of our universities, that's exactly what has happened. And you can see the so-called long march through the institutions has succeeded. And critical theory or cultural Marxism is incredibly predominant in different circles in this country. And it's the major intellectual challenge that we have today. Now, when you look at the American Revolution and the French Revolution, and it's heirs, you can immediately see a whole range of obvious differences. The American Revolution is basically rooted in the scripture. Sadly, it wasn't consistent. There wouldn't have been slavery, et cetera, et cetera. But its central ideas were biblical. The French Revolution came from the French Enlightenment, Voltaire and Rousseau and so on. Or you think secondly of their views of humanity The American Revolution has a realistic view. Separation of powers, checks and balances. Why? We're sinners. You've got to watch out for the abuse of power. The French Revolution, incredibly utopian. And all the revolutions have had that streak of utopianism. And if you think, the worst violence comes from utopians for a simple reason. Whenever you have a gap between the ideal and the real, how do you fill it? Force, power, violence, the reign of terror, and so on. And you can see that in every revolution. They have very different views of humanity, one realistic, one utopian. Or again, you can see another major difference is the views of freedom. The essence of covenantalism is freedom within a framework, put simply. Think of Lord Acton as freedom, the permission to do what you like or the power to do what you ought. It requires character and truth and a way of life, a framework. But the other revolution, no, it's basically do what you like and what you feel is right and so on and so on. You go on down the line, the difference is all the way through are very, very different. Let me just take one example, because it's so important today. How do we address wrongs? All revolutions see something is wrong. There are injustices, there is oppression. We all agree on that. The real question is how do you address them? Now this is very relevant because justice is biblical, And there are many, many young American Christians just hear the word justice and they salute. And I think some of them are incredibly naive because justice biblically understood and justice understood through cultural Marxism, critical theory are very, very different. If you take critical theory or cultural Marxism, they take justice very, very seriously. They were the ones who were originally mocked as the social justice warriors, the SJWs. And what was a pejorative term, they take up as a badge of honor today and call themselves that. And they do care about justice. But how do you proceed? What's well, called critical theory, you liberate through critique. You look at the structures of power and identity in terms of who's got the power and who hasn't. Who's the majority, who's the minority? Who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed? And you can do it in terms of men or women or race or class or generation or whatever it is. So you're analyzing the power structures to work out who's got the power, and of course you're using those who are exploited and are seen as victims as a tool in order to combat them and to gain power. If you know postmodernism, there's no truth. Everything is only power. And if everything's only power, you can say this is wrong, and we're trying to overcome it, but you have no right to establish in the long run. And you can see you have endless conflict of power and just an oscillation like that. And you're using people's victimhood in an exploitative way And there's no final vision of how you restore or reconcile or whatever. So you take a simple example, men and women. Or or take Martin Luther King. It's not the color of your skin. It's the content of your character. See how far we've come from that? It's the color of your skin now. It's the chromosomes you carry and so on. No, things We've got deeper divisions now than there were 50 years ago. So we're at a stage now where every man in America is a potential assailant for every woman. And every woman in America is a potential accuser of every man. And you can see that in a world where you're dealing with power and resentment and suspicion and all these things, the tension and the conflict between the sexes, between the ages, between the races. It's not getting better. It's actually getting worse in the name of those who are using these things in order to try and gain their power. Now compare that with a biblical understanding of addressing wrong. The Bible has a very high view of justice. We're not told much about why Abraham was called with his family. But the Lord says, I called Abraham in order that he should show the way of justice. And there's two words used there. One is public justice, law. The other is personal integrity and generosity. And you have a very, very high view of justice. And you have history's first critique of the abuse of power. So right always wins over might in the biblical view. Now you look, how do you address wrongs? Well, you have a very realistic view of human fallibility, as I said, but then you have a very stringent view of repentance and of forgiveness and of reconciliation and restoration so that enemies can truly be made friends. You just take the notion of forgiveness Forgiveness isn't appeasement. It isn't a form of social abasement. And historians say that biblical, the Jewish and Christian forgiveness, is unique in history. It comes from freedom, and it leads to freedom. Because when you're forgiven, the past is dismissed, and the future is opened up in a new way. And many of these things we take almost as cliches and truisms. When you explore them, you see how incredibly profound they are in many, many ways, and how remarkably different they are from the current secular alternatives to the more previous ones. And so you can see today that critical theory is incredibly powerful in this country. And yet it is radically different from the Jewish and Christian, the biblical position. But another way, it's time for Christians to get off the back foot. At the moment, there's no Lincoln. What Lincoln did in the 1850s, he believed in the Declaration. That was his great North Star. But he addressed what he called the better angels. For better or worse, people talk about, make America great again. But they never ask, what made America great in the first place? And the tragedy is there's nobody at the highest national level defending the American experiment with an understanding of what made it that way. And that's a huge missing element today. But we who follow Jesus along with our Jewish friends, we truly are the heirs, the champions, the guardians of these great truths of a very distinctive view of human dignity, of freedom, of justice, of words, of all sorts of things that are absolutely indispensable to the present crisis. So I think it's time for us to get off the back foot and to see that a Jewish Christian Renaissance is a key to the future, not only of the crisis of the American Republic, but to this search for freedom for humanity worldwide. You look at Europe, ideas flowing from the French Revolution are pretty well predominant everywhere. You look at Asia, the strongest power, of course, is another one that's come directly from the French Revolution, namely Chinese communism. The tragedy of America, it was a very distinct, highly unique, much richer, deeper view of freedom than anything else. And we're losing it to the wrong side. Now, it's not over, of course. It's not over at all. In my study at home, I have some of my favorite writers that I admire, and their autographs on the wall behind me. One of them is W.B. Yeats, our Irish poet, and I've got his signed copy of his second coming written in World War II. Remember he finishes with, what rough beast is slouching towards Bethlehem to be born? If the roots, the biblical roots, go all together in this country, I wouldn't like to see what this country produces. You know the old saying, the worst is the corruption of the best, which was said about Germany, sadly, the Reformation country, which produced the horror of national (laughs) socialism. And some of the forces at work in this country are pretty dark. One of my autographs is uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Now, remember his great speeches to America in the 70s that Americans are gambling their civilization. You are. No one's defending the better angels of the American experiment today. But some of these things can't just be answered in words or by political action. I'll finish with the story and then throw it into you, a story of prayer that means the world to my wife and me. Some of you may know the story of Derek Prince. Cambridge graduate in England just as World War II was breaking out. He was a young don and a philosopher and he was sent to the British Army in North Africa. And he thought, I'll take some books with me to read as we go around. And among others, he took a Bible to read just as one of the Western classics and reading the Bible. He came to faith in Christ. Anyway, when he got to North Africa, disaster. The British army was 800 mile retreat, Rommel pushing them back, and they were at the gates of Alexandria trying to defend the Suez Canal and keep the Germans from taking over Jerusalem. We know what would have happened if they captured the Jews there. The morale was appalling. The officers had more water for their horses and their gin and tonics, than the enlisted men had to drink. It was terrible. Churchill fired the general and replaced him. And the replacement died en route. And so he had to fish around fast to get another man. And he sat down a young, untested general who happened to be the son of a great Christian leader, an evangelical leader back in Britain. But as Derry Prince no church out there. He had the Bible, the Holy Spirit, and a few friends. He said, Lord, in this mess, how am I to pray? And the Lord gave him this prayer to pray every day. Lord, set over us a leader. This is the army. Set over us a leader such that it will be for your glory to give the victory through him. And he prayed this every day. And they retreated, retreated, retreated when this new young general came and they knew the big battle was about to take place, he got the whole army together outside Alexandria and said, let us pray to the Lord of the armies, the Lord of hosts. And Derek Prince listening to this, the Lord said to him, this is the answer to your prayer. Well, the battle the next week was the Battle of El Alamein. And as Churchill said, up till El Alamein, it was all defeat. And after El Alamein, it was all victory. Jenny and I pray every day that prayer, although we turn it into a plural. Lord, set over us leaders such that it will be for your glory to give the victory through them. America is an incredibly important place. For the church, for the republic, but also for the distinctiveness of the American Revolution, really for the West, certainly, but wider still for humanity. That's the moment in which we're privileged to be following Jesus and doing our thing. But over to you. Uh, the, uh, what was the last sentence? What, which principles? What, what principles of the American Revolution inured
1: to that good freedom that you speak
0: about? That. All right. Just expand another whole session, but just a couple of things. Take the notion, I mentioned justice. Justice is an ideal where Christians and Jews have a very strong view Atheists and others have a very strong view. In other words, justice is a shared ideal, although we have very, very different answers to it. When you come to freedom and human dignity, you have something very different. There is nothing comparing secular views, say, with Jewish and Christian views of freedom. So you take freedom. The Egyptians had no view of freedom. Babylonians had no view of freedom. It's in your stars. The Greeks, it was behind everything. Fate takes, say, Oedipus Rex. Whatever he does, he just fulfills the oracle and so on. Now you think, those are ancients. Surely today we have a high view of freedom. Have you ever read The Great Atheist? There isn't a single great atheist who has a strong grounding of freedom. P.F. Skinner, J.B. Watson... Sigmund Freud, come down to Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. Sam Harris's book on freedom last year. You have a puppet on the front. Freedom is a fiction. We're actually determined. It's chance and necessity. The biblical view is almost unique. So the notion of freedom itself. But more importantly, when you come to the American experiment, the way of freedom. At the heart of the rediscovery of the Reformation was rediscovery of Exodus. So you take three things about the Exodus Covenant which put a stamp on America. The first was, you can read the Exodus and then see how people like Cromwell and Knox and Zwingli and Bullinger and then the Puritans in New England, how they picked it up. In Exodus, covenant is freely chosen consent Three times it says, all that the Lord says, we will do. That is the origin of the consent of the governed. Secondly, there was a morally binding pledge. A covenant is much more than a contract. A contract is legal and narrow. But a covenant is comprehensive. You take a marriage covenant, till death do us part, and so on. That, but the third one is a key one the reciprocal responsibility of all for all love your neighbors yourself etc those three things were at the heart of the reformation rediscovery of exodus at the heart of new england and they all flowed into the american now they've been lost today Yeah. The
1: separation, also, of course, the
0: separation of powers, right? Yeah, I mean, the Jews call it the three crowns. You have a king, a priest, and a prophet. The prophet is the world's first social critic and is free to criticize the king. No other nation had anything like that. But he can do so, he's the spokesman of the covenant. They've made this agreement. And if you don't live up to the covenant pledge, then the prophet will nail the king or whatever. That, that's the separation of powers centuries before it happened here. It all goes back to Exodus. Another question. Hmm. Sorry.
1: There's much more evangelical the too there claim to be Christian. And as you probably know, pretend <coughs> Dwight and grandson of Jonathan mm-hmm. Evans became president and the revival started there with Lions Change and throughout the country and so forth. But I, I don't know how we're going to turn it around if it's worth turning around, unless there's a personal revival in Christians. I saw Cody. and
0: said, you see you'd spit in my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Now, there's no question that the first awakening laid the groundwork for the revolution, and the low point of the church is not now, it, you're right, it was in the decades after the revolution. And there was the second awakening, which revived things again. So yes, the church desperately needs revival. But let's remember one simple thing. Compared with most of the European countries, Christians in America are a relatively huge majority. I I mentioned our Jewish friends, less than 2% of America, but as they put it, they punch well above their weight. You think of the Jewish intellectual influence, their financial influence, their entertainment influence. Incredible 2%, and we're huge, and we're supposed to be salt and light. In other words, even with who we are, short of a massive awakening or revival again, we should be living Christianly. Just take one thing alone. Obviously, a huge problem in the mix today is incivility, words. Both trivialized, words, 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 but they've become incredibly cyberbullying and all that. Take a biblical view of words. You know, what the Old Testament calls evil speech. The rabbis say it's worse than murder. Why? If you think, what links us to the Lord? What links us to each other? What's at the heart of marriage and the heart of citizenship? Words. So if we desecrate words... Words should be delivered with respect and with truth, etc., etc, etc. If we're just guardians of that alone, we'd make a huge difference, but all Christians salty in the way we speak and interact with others. In other words, if we take some of these things that are there in the scriptures and just live them out, we'll be incredibly different to our culture and immediately a contribution to a better way.
1: Uh, Mr. Guinness, thank you very much. Um, In in the society today, we talk a lot about human rights. And it seems like the people that are championing human rights are oftentimes not from the church. It's a very secular discussion of human rights. And the discussion is often that these human rights are self-evident. And that X is a human right, Y is a human right, and Z is a human right. In the absence of a God, can these human rights, can human rights really exist?
0: and be self-evident and be innate? No. No. In other words, we're moving. Postmodernism leads us to post-truth. That's Nietzsche, but The Economist put it on the map a few years back. We're now moving into what's called a post-rights world for the reason you're pointing out. In other words, if humanity is made in the image of God, then everyone, however badly educated, however poor, however handicapped, you name it, has an infinite worth. But if they're not made in the image of God, why do they matter? Utilitarianism? None of the ethical systems give you a high view. So we're actually moving into a post-rights world where just a few years ago, you know, the Universal Declaration was the Bible of human rights. It was just, uh, human rights was considered, the, quote, the last utopia. And now we realize, no, that's dangerously gone because it's called Eurocentric or it's called unfounded because there's no basis to it. So we're at a very dangerous stage where people are still claiming these rights, but you can only have rights if someone's responsible for you, which, again... Responsible of all for all, there were rights there because people were responsible. We've got it all the wrong way around. So we're we're moving into a post-rights world and we are followers of Jesus along with our Jewish friends. We're the champions of human dignity and attack the abuse of power. So we are the defenders of human rights, properly understood, but our world is going the other way. You're dead right, John.